Welcome everybody to episode 201 of the Metabolist 2 podcast, which features myself, Ben. And I am David. And this episode, we are going to touch upon the Web of Fear, made possible, I guess, by the recent animation for the stolen or missing episode 3. Exactly. We're going to gently strum the Web of Fear and see what happens. (laughs) It's one of my favorite stories. It's a great story, yes. It's a shame that it is missing a third episode, but we are fortunate since 2013 we have four more episodes than we ever did have. And it was always very disappointing as a Doctor Who fan to have that extant first episode, which was great, and then not be able to continue on watching the story. It was right. just, it's uh, directed by Douglas Camfield, and it sizzled. It's a brilliant production. This is Camfield's uh, return after the Dalek Master Plan, and just with the lighting and the location, well, not location filming, but... Uh, it's as good as location. I mean, it's a Doctor Who anecdote cliche that... These London Underground sets look just like the London Underground, but they do look just like the mm-hmm. London Underground. They're phenomenally well shot, but it, it, it's on film. It's not multicam set up for the stuff at Ealing, I think, is where, right, where, it, was, right, right, right. where it was filmed. So it, was, it is filming, it is, and then later on, we'll, you know, just jumping out. They did have a location in Covent Garden for the Battle of Covent Garden, but Indeed. the story itself is just gripping and. It held up for me very well in audio for all these years, I, at least through the 2000s when the the BBC had released the narrated soundtrack by Fraser Hines uh, doing kind of linking narrations. And it held up very well as an audio story. And I think it's mainly due to the caliber of the voice acting or, well, just the acting in it that the two actors that vary their voices, uh, Jack Wolgard was Staff Sergeant and then Jack Watling as Professor Travers, they both have very different voices when they're under uh, possession by the great intelligence. And it comes across as very eerie, creepy, just everything horrific about it. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. One of the things that I like about it and have sort of, I mean, I'm not as familiar with Web of Fear in its kind of audio form as you Mm -hmm. are and a lot of my love of it came from the novelization but spoiler alert you've just revealed who is the who is the person who is possessed by the great intelligence i i always loved the fact that it's basically a kind of agatha christie you know 10 little indians Hmm. who's the murderer you know it's basically right up until the very end you're like well who who is the inside great intelligence murderer person you know mm-hmm. and i think every every character who walks on and you know i you i think you've probably all heard me talk about this before including episode three with our, the beloved brigadier everyone is introduced with suspicion right. as if they could be the agent of the great intelligence mm-hmm. which i just think is is such a fun structure and really is a kind of a new and um, uh, what's the word? Uh, not new. A kind of um, a kind of different spin on the whole base under siege thing. I mean, everyone loves base under siege. Base under right, siege is right. brilliant. Um, but this is this is kind of locked room, country house, Agatha Christie under siege. Yeah, yeah. We don't know who the villain is. I and mean, we know who the villain is. It's the Yetis and the Great Intelligence. We know right. that already. Uh, but what we don't know is who who is who is the traitor in our midst. And I just really like that structure. And it's super fun. 
and you know Harold is yeah Harold Chorley the you know the the creepy journalist who's obviously like you know based on Alan Wicker like oh yeah maybe he's the he's the great intelligent agent um, and what's the shame about Web of Fear is that we can't see it when it was first seen right. when we didn't know how important Colonel Alistair Gordon Lethbridge Stewart would become. Yeah. Um, because he when he comes on, he's oh yeah, he's like who's who is this? He's all of a sudden this mysterious colonel turns mm-hmm. up. Yep, so at anyway. the at the very end of episode three and exactly there is suspicion about it. just we get introduced to Evans, the uh Welsh uh driver uh, As so and, often in Doctor Who, the cowardly Welshman, uh, <laughs> and uh, is a stock character. <laughs> Apologies to our Welsh listeners, but it is actually a, kind of a Doctor Who thing. Anyway, come it on. is a Doctor Who staple. Yes, <laughs> you got the brave Scotsman and the cowardly Welshman. The cowardly Welshman, yes, <laughs> which is kind of unfair. I don't think Welshmen are, are necessarily cowardly, but in Doctor Who terms, they're always kind of cowards. Yeah, you have funny. The, uh, <laughs> Funny, they're, they're 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 comic relief, but they're also cowardly. It's how you have the stereotypical drunken Irishman in Doctor exactly. Who too, in Underwater Menace, and then True. in uh, Towns Wang Chiang. Indeed, indeed, indeed. But uh, yeah, you you don't get the Lethbridge Stewart uh, suspicion of the character, and I was saying with Evans being introduced, and then with Lethbridge Stewart not recognizing Evans and just kind of casually brushing him aside. Granted, there's a, several degrees of rank, <laughs> rank between the uh, colonel and uh, he's a he's driver. He's driver. Yeah, Evans. he's a driver. So he's a private. He's he's, he's a, yeah. He's a he's a private. He's probably on national service or would no. Yeah, maybe. I think 1960, the last mm. conscripted soldiers leaving the service in 1963. So so wouldn't have been a conscript. He's an enlisted man. So yes, mm-hmm. um, not not a conscript, but still kind of an idiot. <laughs> So, but just by the, that introduction of two survivors from the ammo convoy, that contributes to that suspicion. We get early foreshadowing of Staff Sergeant Arnold being the great intelligence uh, pretty early on when he's. I can't remember precisely this, but he's he's kind of dismisses of it, and he kind of goes, "Well, uh, I don't know because you know, just a hunch about whether the doctors associate the great intelligence or not." Right. But other than that, other than him disappearing in in the web and then coming back, it's even then very plausible. And when Arnold returns, he's full-on soldier you don't see a big personality change they're up until uh part six exactly exactly and i think i mean i don't know whether you listened well i'm sure you did you know some some of the special one of the cool special features on the dvd release is jack Woolgard doing all the voice you know testing out his voice Uh, yeah um, which i thought was very interesting because again i mean this may be something that's that, that's not fully clear to our American listener, but um, the voice he's doing is this really kind of standardized, almost cliched military accent. So uh, kind of lower ranks, enlisted men. As staff sergeant. That, that, that yeah. kind of staff sergeant accent is 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 very, very kind of characteristic. And you'll see, you know, you, if you watch, you know, Bill Hartnell play soldiers in, I don't know, um, you know, Carry On Sergeant Major, 
they have that voice, and right. I think it's, it's. And I think in some ways, you know, I, I, what I think he's probably doing here is he's it's exaggerating that voice so that when that voice falls away in episode six and like I am the great intelligence, right. it's a real kind of shock because all that kind of very very standardized militariness that he's been presenting for a whole five episodes is suddenly gone. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that military bearing and this the way that the soldiers are organized and uh, directed is all down to Camfield and they got Camfield in when they needed to do a military type production and the authenticity of the soldiers and the troop movements uh, is reflected through Camfield's direction. Yeah, and he was, I mean, famously, Douglas Camfield was in the military. I'm, I don't know this. I'm just reading it off the internet. So there you go. Uh, <laughs> he, he, was, he was commissioned. So he was an officer um, in the Royal Army Service Corps in 1951, during his national service, um, transferred to the West Yorkshire Regiment, Territorial Army, promoted to lieutenant in 1952. Um, and it says here, apparently, he was training to be in the SAS. Uh, and he had an injury, and that's why he left the army. SAS being special yeah. forces, for those who aren't. I wonder if it was uh, related to his heart condition, which ultimately took could his be life could be. I mean, caused difficulties. Yeah, I mean, special yeah, SAS special forces, etc. That's that's kind of a tough one. And if they see that you have any kind of even minor health issue, they're going to kick you out, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, that's probably the case. And with the story, the concept of the story is interesting too, as a sequel to the Abominable Snowman. How Lincoln and Hazeman set this like 70 years or 40 years after the abominable snowman takes place so it gives time for professor travers to have had a family and uh, his daughter is uh, in her mid i'm guessing mid-20s or early 30s and she's an established scientist so i think watling had Travers kind of be a crank or a grump in Abominable Snowman, and he just dials that up significantly. He's a, a grumpy, cranky old man throughout this, except then when he becomes possessed by the great intelligence with that wheezing and stuff. And it's uh, it, it's nice continuity. And I, I know that the Doctor Who production team then went on, contracted them for the Dominators, and they had a big uh, falling out over rights over, over the, rights, yeah, the quirks of all of all monsters. Uh, but everyone's favorite, scariest monster of all, the quarks, yes. But we would have seen the Laird of McCrimmon in season six, like the finale of the Great Intelligence trilogy, where. It would have been Jamie's uh, goodbye story where he's possessed by the great intelligence and he directs the TARDIS to Scotland and then the doctor and him and probably Victoria since who knows, or maybe Zoe at the time would have defeated the great intelligence and Jamie would have stayed on to become the Laird McCrimmon. Right. Uh, well, uh, yeah, again, we're the podcasters. We should know this. I'm going to ask <laughs> you though: What's the status with Hainsman and Lincoln now? So, I mean, could um, could could Big Finish do like a lost story and like redo the Laird of McCrimmon, or have they done that already? And I'm just not paying attention. I haven't seen. Uh, well, I haven't paid attention to that per se. But uh, Lincoln and Hainsman have their estates. I believe have given rights to Candy Jar Publications, and they have all the. Um, oh, they do. Okay, Candy Jar, right? Of course, of course. Yep. So they have the Lethbridge Stewart before he became Brigadier, 
they have that whole range of adventures. So my guess is that Lincoln and Hazeman have the rights to the Yeti. Right. You could conceive that their estates would be amenable to getting a, a fee or a you know, right. royalty check because Yeti did return in the Five Doctors when one Yeti was in there with uh, yeah. Troughton and the Brigadier going down the tunnels under the uh, Tower of Rassilon. But I digress. <laughs> we digress. We digress. Yes. Let me let me just throw a quick spanner in your works just for just for the sake of I don't know completeness. Mm-hmm. What do we think about M. L. Silverstein? Ah, the Jewish stereotype. Yes. Well, I guess it is what it is. It is a stereotype, and so yes. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I, I was going to say, you know, Ron Moody and Oliver, um, you got to pick a pocket or two, you know. I mean, I guess that was mm-hmm. still something going on in the 60s. It was seen to be weirdly an affectionate stereotype rather than a um, mm. uh, an aggressive stereotype. I don't know how to pass my stereotypes properly, but, you know, I think uh, that's, that's how I take it. You know, this, that it was like, okay, this is what Jews are like what's offensive about that you know so mm. i say in massive inverted commas um so yeah i mean oliver 1968 same date as this um i guess it was going around yeah the stereotypes i guess would be the knockdown on it you have the, you well we've already, we've already said the county well stereotype yep, yep, yeah 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 and you have uh julia silverstein at the beginning and and I guess if we really want to start poking holes in it, that perhaps brings up that it was missing for so long. I think that both inflated its significance in fandom's eyes, especially fans who saw it on broadcast. Right. And then upon its return, having the uh, missing episode three still. Right. It's had its treatments, I guess. <laughs> There was a fan edit right when 2013 came out, a, a, a fan animation by Adam Bullock. Oh, so an individual did flash animation, and it was available in 2013, and it kind of filled filled the gaps. It, it is definitely the work of one individual. Right. But it captured the character's likenesses very well, and, the, and it was... Uh, presented in a style that was reminiscent of the other episodes around it so there was more tight shots on faces it was done in black and white four by three so that was my go-to animation for quite a while right so you never saw the no no i yeah you're you're the you're the fan edits of things experts i haven't got a monkey's mate I I mean, I obviously, as soon as they found it and they re- did a rush release on it, I bought that rush release. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I double dipped. Did you um, get it off of iTunes or did you wait for the shiny disc or how, how did you? Get oh, it? no, shiny disc all the way. Shiny disc all the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a telesnap reconstruction they did for episode three. Yeah. So that's that's my episode three, basically. But I've not seen. Yeah, I've, I've not seen anything else. Mm-hmm. So I mean, let's let's let, let's talk about episode three for well, let's talk yeah. about the missing episode three for a second. Yeah. So so Philip Morris rocked up to you know TV Nigeria in kind of you know northern provinces of Nigeria and like yeah we've got some Doctor Who and he's like oh cool and he goes in and they got a bunch of cans um, and he expresses too much delight and then one gets half inched mm-hmm. still in Nigeria or did it go missing when they when they were back in the UK? I think that was a. Uh, uh, it it was blurry at the beginning, but I believe it went. the The story is the station manager in Nigeria took one of the 
cans and made it disappear. Which is which always seemed to me to be weird because how does the station manager in Nigeria know that the episode three is the one you, is the one people want? Well. I don't know if it was specifically, say, grab episode three, because if you really wanted to hurt fandom, you would grab episode four, which would have been the Battle of Covent Gardens. Episode three is special in that it's the first on-screen appearance yeah. of Lethbridge Stewart and Patrick Troughton's back from vacation because he was absent all episode two. So you have that. So, so, so you think it's a coincidence that it's you know this kind of key episode, which is the first introduction of Lethbridge Stewart? What was alleged, in my understanding, is that the word leaked out and someone made a call down to Nigeria saying, look, a lot of money here, just pull one of the right. cans. Why don't you pull can three? Uh, so basically that's why Philip Morris is very tight and Paul Vanessa's, et cetera. All the, all the Doctor Who missing episode hunters are very tight-lipped about what they know anymore because they don't want another right. repeat of uh, leads or information getting out and then having a episode go uh, walkabout right, somewhere. Right, right. Fast forward, what, nine years, ten years later, that uh, there's a lot of uh, Philip Morris burnt through a lot of, I think, fandom goodwill saying winds are blowing in the right direction, et cetera, et cetera. But I think the official, and I use that in air quote story, is that it was pinched and that Morris seems to think he knows where it is. But then other people, I, I won't say who, because I don't remember specifically, right. think it was probably destroyed in 2013. In Nigeria. When, in probably right. in Nigeria. Right, okay, okay. To destroy the evidence. Right, right. So see, someone took it and then yeah. the money the money didn't materialize or whatever. Mm-hmm. And they were like, oh, shit, I've taken this thing and I probably shouldn't have done. Right. Easiest thing is to destroy it and pretend that I've never seen right. it. So, yeah. I, okay, who, yeah, it makes sense. I don't know. So are we likely to ever see episode three in its original? I'm... I don't have a lot of hope, but then I'm not a very yeah. hopeful person. It's sort of like uh, <laughs> Paul <laughs> Vanessa's, you know, I'll believe it when I see it. Yeah, I, I, was, I was a soft stop for Paul Vanessa's because he really is pessimistic about everything, which I think is excellent mm-hmm. because there's far too much optimism. I mean, you know. <laughs> yes, there's far too much optimism in the world. <laughs> far too much optimism in the world uh, currently. Um, no, it's, you know, it's like, yeah, I mean, we're lucky to have what we have. Yes given the level of destruction of a lot of BBC TV shows from the 50s and 60s indeed, indeed. and 70s. Yeah. Um, we're very lucky. So we should, um, this is something I learned when I, when I was studying our history, is you should really be thankful and study what you have right. rather than spend your time moaning about what you don't have. Mm-hmm. Because what you don't have, you don't have. What you do have is super cool. Mm-hmm. So look at that instead. Yeah, and going back to pre-recovery. Didn't have anything at all. Like I said, it was very... Uh, disheartening to switch over to audio but very happy to have Graham Strong's crystal clear recordings to to listen to because uh, with combination of telesnaps and just my uh, imagination I was able to uh, really visualize this story and the fact that it meshed so well with what I expected to see when it was returned was uh, it, it didn't disappoint yeah, it just did not disappoint at all. Yeah, and yeah. I, I'm still pinching myself that I can see more than just episode one of it. 
It's an amazing story, and it is, to kind of keep on singing its praises, um, the bits of it that can often be baggy and dissatisfying with Doctor Who, which is the location filming and battle scene is unsuccessful right. and hurried, and the climax is a bit, is a bit pants. Mm-hmm. None of those three things are true. The sets are 100% amazing, mm-hmm. um, and as you point out, you're having them on film helps a lot but they you know that looks like the london underground if i didn't know it wasn't shot in the london underground i would be convinced that it was mm-hmm. um the battle of Covent garden is exciting it's like it's an exciting battle mm-hmm. uh even though it's between you know uh people who are obviously not actual soldiers and then people who are dressed up in giant furry yeti costumes <laughs> um and then the climax is super creepy and weird and Exactly as it should be. Um, the great intelligence is alien and strange, and we're not quite sure what it's up to. Um, and we don't and really know, it's, even at the end, what what is its plan other than just absorb the entire Earth? Yeah, what is it doing? I mean, we don't know where it's from. We don't know why it does what it does. Um, unlike you know other Doctor Who monsters where that makes them kind of, you know... Um, Figures of fun, like the Cybermen, who are like, you know, come on, guys, just come up with a decent plan for for once. Um, it actually plays into the great intelligence's favor. It remains kind of enigmatic. Right. And again, I mean, I, I think I've said this before when we've talked about the great intelligence. I love that something that, you know, calls itself the great intelligence thinks that having <laughs> yetis as its kind of main agents of change is, is an effective thing. <laughs> um, I just think it's brilliant. It's like it's. I mean, it's the kind of stupid choice that a an alien entity would make, mm-hmm. in my opinion. You know, the alien entities don't know like what what looks good and what looks convincing. And so, as far as the great intelligence is concerned, yeah, great. It worked in the nineteen thirties in the Himalayas. It's going to work in London Underground as well. No problem. Um, and I I love that. I think that's just. I think that's it's it's, it's probably an accident. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't think you know the. Hainsman and Lincoln were thinking like, well, you know, maybe the the, the great intelligence is kind of dumb in that way. Um, I think obviously people just wanted a Yeti yeah, sequel, yeah. but I think it fits really well, and I like it, and it makes makes it it makes the intelligence more believable. It's kind of the, it makes it fall into this kind of great pantheon of sort of slightly un we're well, not slightly unhinged, completely unhinged <laughs> and illogical. Doctor Who master villains. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the Great Intelligence is not a monster. The Yetis is the monster. Yeah. The Great Intelligence is a villain. It's a Davros. It's an it's Omega. The, you know, it's nesting consciousness. <laughs> yes, nesting consciousness. You know, it's the thing that has the animated things that do the things. Right. Um, so it's you know it's it's autons, mm-hmm. it's mummies, you know it's gel gel guards, whatever yeah. the hell they're called nowadays. Uh, you know, it's, <laughs> and I, I like it, and I just like that it's kind of random enough to think that that yetis are an effective way to you know an effective medium to do its bidding. Yeah, it's so effective that the Web of Fear has the Yeti Mark II in there. So the Great Intelligence spent time <laughs> upgrading. Yeah, you know what those yetis. <laughs> We can do better than that, guys. Come on. Come on. Let's go back into, into research. The R&D department. Let's go back in there. We can come up with a better Yeti. I'm sure you can do it. We can it's rebuild like, them stronger, exactly. faster, hairier. Yeah, yeah. They're like, the, the great intelligence is like the Elon Musk of intelligences. It's always trying to, you know, yeah, we, we, can, we can build a better electric car, a more effective one. Come on. Um, so, you know, yeah. Do you have a preference between the two, Mark I and Mark II? Um, you know, this is only being a kid. Um, I first came across 
the Mark One on the mm-hmm. cover of Doctor Who and the Abominable Snowman target novelization yep. as depicted by Chris Achilleos. Mm-hmm. And I remember being really, really, really confused um, when I got the Doctor Who monster book. Um, again, covered by Chris Collius, but written uh-huh. by Terence Dix um, in 1975, where they had that famous picture of kind of Anne Travis like, oh, no, I'm scared of a Yeti. Yep. And the Yeti looked completely different. Yep. And I, it was not explained in the text. And that upset and confused me uh, has made me basically anti the Mark II Yeti for years. And I've never <laughs> been able to get over that prejudice. I'm sorry. They look kind of look owlish to me, the Mark II Yetis. I mean, I can see why they have glowing eyes because, you know, it's dark. It's in, in the, the tunnels, yeah. London Underground. And that makes, you know, that's that adds, uh, you know, you can see them better. I mean, obviously a design flaw there, great intelligence. You can see them better because <laughs> they've got glowing eyes. Um, but in terms of a TV monster, yes, they're better because you can see them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I always like the cuddly uh, Yeti from Abominable Snowman, too. I think they're my preference. Oh, yeah, I thought they were. Because really, as a kid, all I was really uh, basing this on was, you know, that one Achilles illustration, the, mm-hmm. the, the, that kind of hint of a fang in that Target novelization illustration. And then the, uh, the kind of black patch where it's kind of, you know, titular mouth was yep. kind of reminded me of like, you know, how dogs have that horrible kind of, I don't like dogs, have that kind of horrible kind of dark slobbery <laughs> thing. The you know, their, their fur around their mouths is yeah. dark because yep. they slobber a lot. Yep. And that's what I imagined Yetis to be like. And that made me fear them even more. Yep. Yeah. I didn't like dogs even then. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm looking at the Kilios cover right now. And it's, yeah, you do have a hint of fang. A hint of fang, which I don't think is actually followed through in the show, is it? Particularly, well, no, we don't not know. At all. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, there's a hint of fang, which um, makes them even more menacing. In olden days, a hint of fang was looked on as something scary. Yeah. Yeah. If I ever did cosplay, I would cosplay a abominable snowman yeti and <laughs> yeah. just hang out in Gallifrey One for the entire convention as just the big big yeti in just the like, back, just, <laughs> just kind of just like skulking <laughs> in the darkness. Imagining that even just, even just beeping exactly, even though you were huge and furry and very clumsy, people couldn't see you. Right? Yeah, you're you're, you're a creature of stealth and concealment, um, <laughs> even though you quite obviously weren't. Um, another brilliant thing about the Great Intelligence, like yes, these Yetis are going to be so no one's going to know what's going on. Um, and also uh, the other thing I like about the Great Intelligence, it's it's he's um, and I you know I think I've probably said this before as well. You know the Great Intelligence. Sorry, I think I made a noise. Then uh, something just fell on the floor. Um, is a uh, you know it's a he's a, it's a Scooby Doo villain. You know it's like oh, we're going to scare everybody by creating a monster, mm-hmm. and you know it's just a it's just someone dressed up as not a real yeti. It's someone dressed up as a yeti. I love it. Love it. Yep. It's all it's all good. Mm-hmm. It's all good. So a big fan of great intelligence. I did. Uh, sorry, I'm, just, I'm not going to finish my extemporizing, um, which is why I was actually disappointed with when they brought the great intelligence back, when Moffat brought the intelligence back. Uh, there was too much cleverness, Moffat cleverness there. And I know what they were doing. Oh, and it's an actual abominable snowman rather than an abominable snowman, abominable mm-hmm, snowman. Mm-hmm. But really, you know, anyway. Well, I don't know. It, it just it. It could have been its own thing. It didn't have to be the great intelligence. And the only reason why it was the great intelligence was because of the recovery of the web of fear. So tying that in, and I think that triggered Moffat's creativity saying, oh, wouldn't it be great to have what would have been the first meeting of the doctor 
and the uh, great intelligence and why not set it in Victorian times England and yeah. uh, have it be actual snowmen and then that makes sense why he would go or he the great intelligence would then go to yeah. Tibet where there's abominable snowmen where why not have the monks or Padmasamava make robot yetis or something I don't know don't uh yeah. I don't don't get it but that's that's what we were saying the great intelligence isn't quite that great <laughs> It's 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 intelligent, but it's but in its own special yeah. way. Yeah. It's specialized. Yeah. It's specialized. Yeah, it's a yeah, it's a special needs intelligence in some ways. You touched upon the Battle of Covent Garden, how great that looks, and again, it comes down to the direction of filming that did so much with just for Yeti. Yeah, that you have the Yeti coming from different streets. Okay, what's all right? All. All you Yeti go down the street. Okay, well, I just want three of them there, or two there. You know, and it made it seem like there's about 12, 15 Yeti attacking in Covent Garden. And then just the closing in of the troops and how some Yetis would die, but yet the Yeti kept coming. So it always seemed like there was more Yeti. There, whatever tricks that they learned making four Daleks look like an army of Daleks certainly paid off with yeti that they're hard pressed to know that there was only four yeti yeah. at any one time that you could ever ever film so we talked about the recovery we talked about back in 2013 waiting for the shiny disc to come i i also waited for the shiny disc because at at the time there was rumors that well there's going to be a special edition and of course it's either going to be animated or they'll have recovered it and it was just you know, at at that time, Marco Polo was just right around the corner of being a release. So I held off for the CD. I only downloaded off of iTunes the uh, Enemy of the World because that was complete. So I watched that the the week the week, the week oh, of right. its release, but then waited for the U.S. edition for the Web of Fear. But uh, again, we have this animation of the Web of Fear now for the special edition. And what do you make of that? It's a it's a very different animation style than what we've had before very very different animation style of what we've had before so it's it's had a lot it's got had a lot of stick uh, as i'm sure you know yeah. in fandom and for people in general um i don't know actually who those people would be who would watch this who weren't fans um it was interesting gary russell addressed this directly really um because you know that's the kind of guy gary russell is to yeah. be honest at gallery one and he said, you know, and I, I'm not going to quote him exactly because I can't actually remember what he said exactly. But basically kind of threw his hands up, mea culpa. Yeah, you know, it's, it was an experiment. Mm-hmm. What we were doing was needing to animate episode three. And we wanted to try and find a way that we could create a more naturalistic style of movement that would allow us to apply, that would then give us the experience to apply that new style to uh, missing episodes, which had basically just a cast of humans. Right. So no Cybermans, no robots, no, you know, no Daleks. So stuff like the Highlanders, mm-hmm. where, you know, you, it's, it's a, that's a difficult one to animate because it's just a bunch of people walking around, right. you know, in kilts and stuff. So, I mean, that's, and he said, you know, he was willing to admit that it had its flaws, but it got the job done. And I actually, I don't mind it. Mm-hmm. I think it's different. I think it its flaws are different from 
the other kind of traditional, not say hand drawn, but you know the other kind of animation, the flash animation that we, the flash seen. animation, you know, yeah. it 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 has advantages over that, but mm-hmm. it has disadvantages that are not present in the flash animation. Right. So you know, neither of these animation styles a hundred percent work. I actually found it quite refreshing to have something new mm-hmm. and something that was more kind of mo had a more kind of mocap feel to it. Mm-hmm. And you know, I was fondly imagining that give it a give it another decade or so. You know, they still got the files. You know, maybe they could deep fake people's faces onto it in a way that you probably couldn't do. Well, I know you definitely couldn't do with the flash animation. Right. But if you have something that is really kind of based on naturalistic movement, then maybe over time you can tweak that so it looks less like the scarecrow from Family of Blood. Right. So overall, uh, pretty uh, success for you? or I, th- I think, I mean, all of the animation has issues mm-hmm. and always will. Um, so... It's a success because, as I said, its lackings are unique to itself and match the lackings of the more traditional animation, Mm -hmm. in my opinion. Well, for me, the first time I watched it, I just thought it was pretty horrible. I rewatched episode three Friday night in context. So I watched uh, on Thursday episodes one and two, Friday episodes three and four, and then last night episodes five and six to kind of uh, space it out a little bit and let it sink in. And I think my biggest beef with it is twofold. The first and probably the most significant one is character likenesses. I don't think the likenesses are very good for most of the characters in that animation. Uh, There are some exceptions. I think uh, Professor Travers is pretty good. The doctor is middling but serviceable. But where it really falls down is on the two women in the cast. Uh, Victoria and Anne Travers are just horribly done (laughs) and not just they look nothing like the actors themselves but the camera angles that they record uh the movements the like victoria's eyeline when the doctor comes back and they're talking about what about jamie in the tunnels and that that her eyeline is all weird but probably the worst part of it is near the end after the doctor leaves the room for a minute and and there is just Anne and Victoria in the lab and the angle that they present uh, Anne and Victoria it's uncanny valley it's just really bad so perhaps if better facial sculpts or skins or textures or whatever I'm not a 3D modeler on those characters it would help it better maybe less cartoony maybe more photorealistic i don't know but the likenesses were really bad for me well i think this is what i'm hoping as i said from what one understands you know part Mm -hmm. of the the way that this could be done is because of you know the incredibly detailed camera scripts that camfield would produce so you know so this so they're able to be a lot more uh a lot more fidelity to you know the original camera directions for the director than they can ever be in the flash animation, right? Of um, course. Because you can get an angle, you get angles on it that you can't mm-hmm. get with mm-hmm. the front, sidewards, above, below angles that you can get on the um, 
uh, on the more traditional animation. And again, I mean, the likeness thing, yes, I mean, I think it is a problem. I, I think, as I said, you know, as you said, and as I've said, you know, that they give, give it a decade, you know, maybe they can, they can actually deep fake slap some actual, um, an actual, some actual skin on there um, and, and make these look a lot more, a lot more realistic. Um, when you were talking about likenesses, you know, I was, well, yeah, okay, remember Fury from the Deep, where, you know, to avoid doing likenesses of the guards, they just stuck them all in helmets. Right. Which is actually, they weren't in helmets Mm -hmm. in the the show, because they were all actors. Right. But I wonder why, though, in the Telesnap reconstruction, the renders for the Yeti were so much better than the, the animated 3D version of the Yeti. So, you know, I mean, this is what I mean. You know, each style of animation has its problems. Right. With traditional, the traditional flash animation, you literally, you cannot do every character. So some people who had faces back in the 60s, you remove their faces completely and put right. them in helmets. Right. Here, obviously, these are main characters, so maybe they should try and do a better job. But it's hard, whereas you might say, you know, it's possibly easier to animate someone's face Someone like Pat Troughton, who has this amazingly expressive, lined face, mm-hmm. compared to you know a young girl, a um, young woman, you know, an Anne Travers or a Victoria. So you know, I I I, I cut it a lot of slack mm-hmm. in that way. Yeah. The other bit that was distracting initially, but more excusable, is there's still a lot of character sway. It is kind of choose your fighter kind of street, you know, like old style computer animation, you know, for video games yeah. where I'm actually doing it now. You can't see that because this is a podcast. <laughs> I'm doing that kind of ooh, sway, sway, sway. I'm ready to fight now. Yeah, they do mm-hmm. that. And that's unnecessary. Yeah. I don't think they actually needed to do that, but they did. I think you just tone down those movements a little bit. And if you had better likenesses, deep fake characters, you could then do tighter shots and to get that 1960s feel where you have a lot of close-ups of people talking because you're on really small televisions and you want to see people's expressions and whatnot. All that type of stuff that you don't get in animation where, where I think it's good now that I've had my gripes with it. I think they picked up on quite a bit of subtlety in uh, stuff that you didn't pick up on the audio that are explained with emotion. I'd watched the telesnap reconstruction, the new telesnap reconstruction side by side with the animation. And I'm guessing this is a directorial choice, but this is something that doesn't come across on the soundtrack when you listen to it. When Captain Knight calls and Travers and the doctor and Victoria, et cetera, into the uh, briefing and goes, well, a briefing? We're not in the army yet, Captain. And then on her way out, the animation has Anne salute Captain Knight. And that's just a little bit of nice uh, visual imagery that isn't, right. doesn't, I wouldn't have thought up of uh, just listening to it. Yep, we desperately you know? need a tech billionaire to be like a real Doctor Who fan. Don't know. I mean, David. I mean, this is your opportunity. <laughs> I know. I know you always planned to be a tech billionaire, but I really yeah. think you need to actually do this now. And, um, and got to get off, get off my horse. And... You have exactly, and, <laughs> and invent something that no one's had before, and then just fund Doctor Who projects. Pour millions and millions of dollars into Doctor Doctor animations. And would we start with uh, what? What would we start with? Um, I'd start with redoing them all from scratch in some way. Mm-hmm. Which, which story? Oh, which, which story? story? Ooh. Um, you know what? I'd start. I'd start out. In fact, I'd start out. I'd, I wouldn't start them. Do them all from scratch from the beginning. Mm-hmm. I'd like make a splash and I'd do master plan. 
Really? Okay. Right off the bat. Yeah. Hmm. Right off the bat. And I'd get Richie. I'd fly him over to Hollywood or wherever your, <laughs> your studio would be. And, you know, I'd buy him a house and he basically he'd everything he needed and just get him animating Daleks and then just do it. Just spend millions and millions of dollars. He'd have to quit his day job. This would become his day job. This would be his day job. You would hire Rob Ritchie and this would be his full-time job. <laughs> All right. It makes sense, you know. Uh, the only downside is that you have to become a billionaire, but I believe in you. <laughs> well, I'll get right on that. <laughs> okay, good. Thank you. Can you do that? Excellent. I don't know if I'd start with the Dalek Master Plan, though. Which one would you start with? This is this is a whole other podcast. Hang on. Mm. We shouldn't be yeah, we should is, be giving this stuff away. This is the bumper. We've okay. chatted for, what, 45 For long minutes. enough. Yeah. Exactly. Hmm. So I think, again, choosing something that isn't already available. Let me, sorry, let me just, let me just preface. And uh, the reason I choose Master Plan is because also, using your billions, you would invent some kind of, you know, Time space visualizer that will allow, will allow you to recreate the Feast of Stephen exactly as it was. <laughs> in time for Christmas. Just in time. Christmas 2024. Christmas 2024. Feast of Stephen. It's back, baby. Give me a year to become a billionaire and then a year to make it. <laughs> exactly. There you go. I think I would go for the wheel in space. Oh, nice. I think that it's what the last episode that hasn't had animation for season five. So by the, by then, by providing that, then we could get a shiny Blu-ray. Good. Yeah, I like it. I like it. We'll see. Yeah. I, I, we'll see. I, first, we'll I got to make that billionaire's club there. Yeah, you have. But as I said, I mean, we believe in you, so um, well, that shouldn't, shouldn't be a problem. Got that Doctor Who preference revealer. That, that's, uh... Yes, exactly. <laughs> that's what you're going to build your tech empire on. <laughs> Doctor Who preference revealer. Yeah. Revelations. There you go. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, fantastic. so the animation, yes, I think, I'm, so going back to the animation, the second time out, uh, I, it wasn't as bad as my first reaction, but the women characters, they needed a redo. I, for whatever, whatever this modeling technique is, it wasn't very um, friendly to the uh, Anne Travers and Victoria. Okay. Yeah. No, I think fair comment, fair comment. Given that the animations are kind of massively paused right now, mm. you know, we may not see its like again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think that is our uh, look at the Web of Fear. A very welcome return of a Troughton classic. Uh, wish we didn't have to talk about animation, but there are two animation versions to experience and, uh, of course, a Telesnap reconstruction. And yeah. Good good to have it back. Good to have it back. Um, I think it's definitely a release that's worth picking up. Don't know when we're going to get this as a box set. So buy the DVD, support the range, or the Blu-ray. Excellent. Well, on that note, thank you for listening to episode 201 of the Metabulous 2 podcast. I have been discussing Yeti cosplay with Ben. And I have been fruitlessly encouraging David to become a tech billionaire. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to drop it. I'm not going to drop it. No, you're not going to drop it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And... Uh, yes, and it will happen. It will. <laughs> You're a pessimist. I'm an optimist. I believe. I say, we, yeah. yeah, we believe in you. No, it's not really an issue of no, pessimism or optimism, it's, it's, is it? Really, in some ways, yeah. You'd have to almost invent time travel to get get what you want back for this. True, but I think it's a, it would be a good use of time travel. Go back and uh, get uh, videotape yeah. masters of uh, Web Web of Fear. Absolutely, that'd be an excellent use of time travel. <laughs> yeah, I can't think of a better use, to be honest. Well, okay, <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, bye, everybody. All right, good. Bye. Bye. That was good. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. <laughs>